This is a Rooster Teeth production. March 23rd, 1911. A cargo ship carrying 49 passengers, 73 crew members, and one famous racing horse set out from Mackay, Australia. Within hours, the ship and all aboard had mysteriously disappeared, only to be discovered 47 years later. With the horse still alive. Nope. No, no very much not, okay. actually. We'll, we'll get mind. to that. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Ahoy and welcome aboard Ship Hits the Fan, a podcast about some of history's most notable uh-ohs and whoopsies on the high seas. On the high horse. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're making the case against bringing a horse aboard a ship. The sea is not the domain of the equine. It's also not the domain of men. Uh, actually, it's barely the domain of massive ships. In fact, yeah. we should all stay away from the oceans. Uh, horses and guys alike. Uh, rest in peace, Moonshine. Uh, king among other horses. A horse among kings. Is that the horse's name? Yeah. Oh, so should have established that first, uh, maybe. It's foreshadowing. Yeah. Well, it's... Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's get into it, okay, Thank you. shall we? Uh, do we have any business to attend to? Thank you, everybody who's uh, listening and sharing. Uh, thank your moms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are so happy to be back. We um, love seeing all the people tweeting at us. Also happy. Send us your uh, honorable mentions on Twitter. Yeah, at Ship Hits Pod. Uh, you can get at us on Instagram as well and TikTok, uh, a site that we do understand and mm-hmm. we have more to post to. Mm-hmm. And we remember that it exists. Site. App, I guess. Yeah. Okay. The SS Yungala was built in 1903 in England for the Adelaide Steamship Company. Mm-hmm. Despite being ultimately bound for Australia, the Yungala, like many other ships, was built in the UK. Some of the biggest shipyards Massive. we've ever seen. And I've never even seen them. <laughs> I haven't either, but oh, okay. I've heard. I know they're there. We should go. Yeah. As we mentioned in last week's episode covering the Battle of May... England was known at this time for its navy and seafaring prowess in general, and that extended into the manufacturing of ships destined for countries all over the world. Mm -hmm. The company that ordered the Yungala, the Adelaide Steamship Company, was actually relatively new. (laughs) Oh my god! Tried to hold it in. (laughs) Wow! My stars. Uh, The company that had ordered the Yungala, the Adelaide Steamship Company, was actually relatively new by comparison. Formed in 1875, only 28 years before the Yungala was built, the Adelaide Steamship Company was formed to control the trade routes of Southern Australia. Now, Australia has a very interesting history when it comes to trade routes and oceanic exploration. Yeah. Yeah. Australia's first inhabitants are believed to have landed on the continent from Southeast Asia approximately 65,000 years ago, uh, which to the English means uh, nothing. Yeah. (laughs) These indigenous peoples lived relatively undisturbed until the Dutch arrived in 1606. Who are actually maybe, I I think the Dutch are on par with England when it comes to horrific. Pretty bad. Like the Dutch... East Indian Company. Oh, yeah. The East Indian Trading Company is responsible for untold uh, (laughs) horrifying actions. Yes. Anyway, from 1606 to 1770, multiple European countries traveled to Australia and subsequently claimed it as their own without any input from the people who already lived there. Well, of course. Yeah, naturally. (laughs) When when has there ever been input? What am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? Go and knock on all the doors on the island? (laughs) However, in 1770, James Cook claims it for the British, and recommends building a colony on the island, but not just any colony, a penal colony. Oh. Yeah. 
It's the this is sort of the famous trivia uh, associated with Australia. Yeah, is that it was a giant prison colony. Another trivia is that uh, all the geese in being part of the Commonwealth are still owned by the royal family. They were the Queen's geese. Okay. Anyway, in 1788, British ships arrived full of prisoners banished to Australia as a kind of prison island, which sounds like an ABC show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like Escape from New York. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Imagine Escape from New York, but with more snakes, more spiders. More genocide of Native peoples. Yes, definitely. But... All of that changed as they expanded out into new colonies and found resources on the island that were useful to Great Britain. Ah, showing itself of use to the empire. <laughs> yeah, good, great, good. You may be wondering, did any of this benefit the aboriginal people who lived on the continent this entire time? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Oh. No. Uh, no, not at all, actually. To all their right. detriment, I would say. Yeah. But when has Britain ever cared about that? From the 1840s to the 1860s, Britain stopped sending prisoners to Australia and instead demanded that it exist as a functional colony, paying taxes and tribute to the crown. Good, good, Just good, good. big brain galaxy 4D chess kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's immediately following this period that the Adelaide Steamship Company is formed. Their goal was twofold, control the shipping of goods from Adelaide to Melbourne, and its second goal was to provide a passenger service between the six largest colonies on the continent. However, in 1901, only two years before the Yungawa was built, Australia voted by referendum to unite the six colonies on the continent, effectively forming their own country. Oh. Yeah. This meant that instead of traveling trade routes based on what Britain wanted, they were forging their own way. This is the world into which the Yungawa was launched. They named the ship Yungala after a small town in southern Australia. The town itself was named after an aboriginal word meaning good water. Good water. That's Yungala? So yeah. That means good water? Well, I think, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think the name of the town, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah sorry. No, I got confused. <clears throat> cut that? Don't cut it. Cut it? The ship had a custom-built steam engine, which allowed them to travel at 15.8 knots. Whoa. But according to records from the time, the Yungawa was known to have reached up to 17 knots multiple times. What? Speed demon. I wonder how they measured that. Yungala. <laughs> Yungala. <laughs> Considering these were not Navy battleships built for optimal speeds, this was extremely impressive for these kinds of ships, at the time at least. Shout out. Shouts out. In order to provide steam to the engines, the Yungala was outfitted with five large boilers that were capable of creating 180 pounds per square inch of pressure. When traveling at top speed, the Yungala could use up to 67 tons of coal per day to heat the boilers. My God. I mean, that's just standard coal use. Extraordinary amount of coal. (laughs) And you wonder why we are in the situation we are now. (laughs) It's Yeah, we used to use so much more fuel and go maybe like... So much slower yeah. <laughs> off of it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, additionally, the ship had two steam cranes, newer technology for the time. They were used to pull extremely heavy cargo from the docks and position it on top of the ship, fitted with their own smaller boilers. So there's little boilers to, young, yeah, to power the young boilers. cranes. Okay. And this was not the only newer technology on the ship. The young Gala was also outfitted with a Nintendo Switch. Really? <laughs> Motion controls and everything? Yeah, but they only had one, two switch. Oh, yeah, so it's not uh, really. Snipper clips. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it had electric lighting. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty impressive. The first ship to be outfitted with electric lighting, the Columbia, was launched in 1880, only 23 years before the Yungala was built, and even then it wasn't widely used. 
In the intervening years, some ships were converted from gas lighting to electric, but often only for hallways, navigation, or maintenance areas. Yeah, you only really need so much electric lighting in your ship. It's true, yeah. As long as you have enough whale fat, mm -hmm. you're fine. It'll burn true. Yeah. The Yungala was constructed with electric lighting built in and the requisite generators to power that electric lighting. It included lights in staterooms, hallways, dining areas, navigation, and maintenance areas, which meant even more coal to power the generators. <laughs> I love that it's like we're getting electric lighting, okay? Mm -hmm. You don't have to burn coal for your lighting anymore. No more gas. Like, oh, what does it run on? Coal. coal. <laughs> lots and lots of coal. Yeah. Unbelievable amounts of coal. But I mean, no. that's still, still, we still get a lot of our power from coal. Well, it's good, clean coal now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe more impressive than the electric lighting, the Yungala was also built with refrigeration holds for chilled cargo. Oh, and so you didn't have to bring animals with you. Not Living all, animals. Yeah, and not all your meat had to be salted. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's huge. But a, a huge knock for folks that really like that salted taste yeah. uh, to their meat. Mm -hmm. Refrigeration was first installed on boats in 1876, developed by a man named Charles Teller. It was powered by ether. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Three small refrigeration units were installed on a ship called the Frigorific. Is it Frigorific? Oh, yeah, probably. It's Frigorific. <laughs> the Frigorific. <laughs> what the Frigorific? <laughs> what? That sounds like a horrible, like, online... Uh, Phrase like from flash. like the early 2010s, yeah. something like, well, what in the frigorific it was totally is totally yeah. frigorific. It sounds bad. It does sound bad. Anyway, boat refrigeration was born. Great. And it was ether, so you could take a tube off and get a hit. Get a huff. Get a and, yeah. <laughs> there were some problems with this. Mm -hmm. Namely, it could only cool small areas. But also, it's those little, like, little tiny fridges that are designed to house one glass bottle of Coke. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, crew members could use the ether, oh yeah, as a kind of recreational sedative. Not as a kind of, as a recreational sedative. As a recreational sedative. sedative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we weren't joking. Yeah. Literally only a year later, Ferdinand Carre developed a larger pressure-based system, and this was the version installed on the Yungala, much less fun, and if you huff that, you're yeah, probably- Yeah, go to hell, sailors, trying to get high. <laughs> We found out that the crew members of the frigorator or frigorif, whatever, were uh, huffing ether, so we scuttled the ship with them on it. <laughs> and God's happier for it. Yeah. This had multiple benefits. It could cool larger areas for longer times, but more importantly, there was no ether for sailors to steal a good time. Yeah. Can't have been good for morale, but, no. you know, for the guys running the ship, that is probably for the best. Mm -hmm. Because the Yungala was already using pressured boilers to fuel the steam engines, it was easy to route some of that pressure to the refrigerated car... Refrigerated? <laughs> sure. Do I have that? The refrigerated cargo holds when necessary. It just meant that the boat would either travel slightly slower or burn even more coal! Cool. So initially, the Yungala transferred mostly passengers along the western coast of Australia from Adelaide to Melbourne to Sydney. But a few years later, it was transferred to the Brisbane to Fremantle route. Wow. How about that? <laughs> Isn't that interesting, Patrick? It's fascinating. Brisbane. Brisbane. Fremantle. Because it had one of the strongest engines and some of the most modern amenities for the time, it was the first ship to sail directly from Brisbane to Fremantle, a 2,700 nautical mile trip, okay. a journey that at top speed would have taken them eight days and 536 tons of coal! 
It's so much coal. I love that Paige is really leading into the coal usage. God. That is good. Uh, by the way, if you're curious, if roughly 20% of children who celebrate Christmas are naughty each year and Santa gives them one pound of coal each, which, you know, that's a lot for a kid. Yeah. It would be enough coal to power this particular route for the Yangala 2,407 times. Okay. So uh, Santa is a bigger threat to carbon nice neutrality. To uh, than the old boat. Yeah, it's nice to get that in terms I can understand. Yeah, I'm looking at a map of Australia. There's a city called Cocklebitty. <laughs> it's Cocklebitty. It's really pronounced. And if you scroll over it on maps, it's just a picture of an oil tanker. <laughs> Cockletitty. Cocklebitty. Cocklebitty. Yeah. Frigorific. Cocklebitty. Cocklebitty. <laughs> <Huh. laughs> huh. That was actually the name of the cook Hang aboard on. the Yungala. Also seeing another interesting Kangaroo Island. Hmm. Huh. Kangaroo Island. <laughs> the ship wrecked on Kangaroo Island where the crew and passengers were torn apart. <laughs> but kangaroos... Except for one who was made into kang- who's kangaroo... Who's made kangaroo, kangaroo yeah. yeah. <laughs> who's made kang- Tarzan of kangaroos. Yeah. Just enormous thighs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's uh, putting it in uh, terms that the Christmas fans out there will understand. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this says more about our use of coal in the early 1900s or the rate at which children are becoming naughty. Both Either worrying. Way. Yeah. Either way. Regardless of the carbon neutrality issues, from 1907 to 1911, there was a sharp decline in business along the Brisbane Fremantle line. The Yungala was folded back into the Melbourne Cairns route. Let's talk, though, about the 99th voyage. Okay. Okay? Yeah. On March 14, 1911, the Yangala set out from Melbourne with 72 passengers headed for Brisbane. It was her 99th voyage, as I said, yeah. and she was helmed by an experienced captain, William Knight. It's a good captain name. Bill Knight. Yeah. Uh, the voyage took over 400 tons of coal. <laughs> the Yangala arrived in Brisbane without incident March 20th, 1911, and if you ask some, this is where the problems began. Unfortunately, you can no longer ask some because yeah, some are all dead. Long past, yeah. survivors included, of which yeah. there were none. Anyway, yeah. it was in Brisbane that a number of passengers disembarked and new passengers and cargo were loaded onto the ship, including one very special passenger. Oh? A famous racehorse named Moonshine. Ooh. Was that the whole name, Moonshine? Don't racehorses usually have like eight names? This was back in the early 1900s before they used up all the single names. Oh, Okay. According to records from the port, loading moonshine onto the boat took longer than expected. So long, in fact, that for many years, people credited this delay with the demise of the ship. It's a horse. Why don't you just walk it on board the ship? What are you talking? What? This is moonshine, Patrick. This is not just any, you know, Was he waiting in his trailer? <laughs> <laughs> Historians now believe that this was not the case because the ship made multiple stops following the stop in Brisbane and seemed to make up their time. Ah, okay. But uh, nevertheless, for many years, poor Moonshine was known as the racehorse who sunk a ship. That's a cool title, though. It's pretty cool. I mean, that would be the name of Especially a, if you're a dead. derby-winning horse yeah, these yeah, days. Yeah. yeah. Especially if you're dead and don't have to deal with like the repercussions. Yeah. That's just your legacy, which is cool. The racehorse who sunk the racehorse who sunk a, no, the racehorse who sunk a ship pulling ahead of frigorific. <laughs> Unless all our known history about this wreck is wrong, and Moonshine was in fact three sheets to the wind, kicking holes in the boilers with his hooves, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> mad on ether. Mm-hmm. I'm fairly certain that this is not his fault, and he deserves justice for the many years he was blamed for this wreck. This is a pro Moonshine show. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, once Moonshine was loaded onto the boat, they proceeded to their next port. 
March 23rd, they made landfall at Flattop Island and Mackay before setting out for Townsville, approximately 208 nautical miles away, and probably 8,000 tons of coal, if I know anything about this ship. <laughs> yeah. The voyage from Mackay to Townsville was supposed to have taken them about 14 hours at top speeds. However, they only made it approximately five hours into the open seas before tragedy struck. Uh-oh. Mm. The Yungala hit strong winds and rough seas, nothing she hadn't seen before. But the crew didn't know it was about to get much worse. Great. They rarely do. Great, yeah. Weather tracking at the time was still primitive, uh, primitive to non-existent probably, and the crew along with everyone else on land had no idea that the Yungala had just sailed into the outskirts of a tropical cyclone. Oh, cool. That's probably good. Yeah, and tropical cyclone, if you're wondering, is kind of synonymous with hurricane, the weather phenomenon, not the drink. Not the uh, 40 yeah. ounce malt liquor. Or the boxer. Yeah, or the boxer. <laughs> anyway, it's believed that's what this storm was. From excavations and plotting of the final resting place of the Yangala, it's believed that the seas shifted so wildly that she was thrown against a rock below the waterline. Oh, this rock yeah. severed the hull and is believed to have also damaged one or more of the boilers. Not the coal! Yeah, that's, that's no good. Because the boilers were pressurized to create steam and also refrigerate the chilled holds, that pressure caused the damage to the hull to be even worse. Oh. Pulling the damaged portion of the ship almost clean off. Whoa. Yeah, Hachi Mama. How did the horse pull that off? <laughs> yeah, how is this the horse's fault? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's bad luck bringing the horse aboard. I guess it's just the timing, right? They're saying, like, had they left earlier and not spent however long getting the horse on board, they would have missed the storm. I think superstitious folk don't like to see things like horses on ships, too, though. Yes, yes. Hold on one second. 100%. Or women. That's true. That's why they always jettison the women first in an effort to save the ship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, the ship sank so fast there were no survivors. Uh, 122 passengers died almost instantly. I believe that includes crew. I mean, it must. Yeah. yeah. The problem was no one back on shore knew. Right. (laughs) Because it was 1911. That's correct. While the Yungala had a lot more modern technology for the time, one thing that she didn't have was a wireless radio. Yeah. And it wasn't until the Yungala failed to show up at the next port, because that's, that's when you would find out these things, uh-huh. and portions of the ship started washing up on land that people knew what had happened. But they couldn't be sure it was the Yungala until one very important passenger washed up on shore. Was it Moonshine? It was Moonshine, the oh, racehorse. Oh, and he was healthy and strong and had swam to shore. Bucking all the way. Yeah. Uh, No. Oh. Yeah, later the same day as the wreck, the shark-bitten carcass of a horse <laughs> was found washed up in a creek bed oh. in, in a creek bed in nearby Cleveland Bay. Those sharks say horse that's good meat. <laughs> they horse got a meat. taste for a horse, Race and they've, horse. Been, they've been hounding yeah. the <laughs> Uh, yeah, and they've been hounding horse trails close to the coast ever since. Mm-hmm. Two men discovered the carcass, John Julia and Michael O'Brien. That yeah. was probably fun for them. Uh, they thought it was strange to find a horse washed ashore because typically horses don't live in the ocean. Well, yeah. Yeah. No, they're a sea, a land-faring creature, I should say. Famously. Yeah. Except for seahorses. No, yeah. That's a fish. Yeah. It's not a true horse. I don't know. Is it a fish? Yeah. It's not It's not a true horse. No, I know it's not a horse. I just didn't know if it was they're classified not as a different a, kind No, they're of... not related to the horse, the mammal. I didn't all. think they There's were. There's no relation. No, I under, I'm familiar with the seahorse. No relation to the mammal horse. Moving on. I... Glad I could clarify Did that Did you for know that you. actually whales are pretty related to war, uh, horses? They have vestigial little bones for where their hind legs Where the used saddles to used to go? No. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where the saddles used to go. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I know what seahorses are, and I know that they're not related to the land horse. Glad I could clear it up for you. Uh, anyway, John and Mike did the only thing that made sense. They called the cops. <laughs> Officer, uh-huh. there's a horse. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the police apparently unbothered with the potential of finding a true seahorse. Yeah. Not this uh, unrelated creature, which mm-hmm. we both know it's unrelated to the land horse. Yeah. Uh, these police arrived two weeks later. Yeah. So good to know that the uh, Look, sort of guiding a, principles mean, behind I'm, the police. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say I'm going to give them a pass here because if someone came up to me and was like, there's a dead horse. I'd be like, okay, all right, yeah. Well, it's also 1911, where it, it could have been a dead kid, Probably and someone would have been like, yeah, and someone would have been like, yeah. I mean, it happens. Yeah, I don't know what you yeah, want us a to kid do. Died. That's what kids do. What they should have done is set up like a tent and charged a nickel to gaze at it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. see the amazing wa- uh, water, uh, foal, water foal. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like a horse, a young horse is a yeah, foal, yeah, yeah. and I'm kind of relating it back to waterfowl, uh-huh. like a type of bird. Anyway, the police did show. Yep. Um, tipping up their their cap with their batons and saying, "What's this here?" <laughs> um, but yeah, by uh, by the time they did arrive, the horse carcass stank so badly people could hardly get near it, mm-hmm. and most identifying markers of the horse were gone. Don't know what that means. Yeah, yeah. I, Shoes, I guess. Teeth? Um, I don't know. Yeah, fur patterns. <laughs> anyway, the police checked the manifest of boats traveling through that waterway and found the only logical explanation. An underwater sea kingdom of horses. <laughs> Where all horses originate from. <laughs> uh, no, they found the only logical explanation. This was Moonshine, the murderous boat-sinking racehorse. Armed with the knowledge And that- police informant. <laughs> Yeah, and noted rat. That's why they didn't show. That's right. Because they didn't want to blow his cover. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They had to wait until there were no identifying marks of yeah. a horse left. Yeah. It must have been seabirds, right, that took pieces of it? Oh, and the sharks. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And all the bacteria from the sharks' mouths probably helped no, to rot it. No, sharks' mouths are famously clean. Oh. Armed with the knowledge that the Yungala must have sunk about two weeks prior, they began to search the nearby beaches for additional information and parts that had washed up on shore. Yeah. News of the Yungala's fate had started to reach the family and friends of the passengers on the boat, and some of them reached out to John Aya and Michael O'Brien. At the request of one of the passengers, O'Brien searched a nearby seabed where it was believed that the Yungala may have sunk. Does finding a horse washed up on the shore, like, indebt you to like finding the rest of it did they just have nothing else going on i think they were it was 1911 well get this o'brien was actually a skilled diver i pulled you into a false sense of security and pulled the rug out from under you o'brien was actually a skilled diver and is believed to have been one of the first people to attempt to find the remains of the young gala he did not find the remains of the ship but he did find a bag of spoons stamped with the name (laughs) young gala that's pretty good not bad. Better than nothing. Not bad at all. Those could probably get you a, a pretty penny today. Maybe. The spoons were believed to have been part of the Yungala's kitchen equipment. Makes sense. Mm. Uh, no one knew about the spoons until 2004 when Michael O'Brien's granddaughter, Dawn O'Brien, was interviewed regarding her grandfather's discovery. So he just pocketed those spoons and went home. Yeah, probably silver. According to Dawn, Michael had a wife and 10 children, so they always needed more spoons. <laughs> The spoons were <laughs> used awesome. in the household for many years because, you know, hey, free yeah. spoons. Yeah. Right? John Julia's story is a little different. He was only 18 at the time that he found Moonshine's body, and he was of mixed race. 
Although locals acknowledged him with finding Moonshine's remains, the local paper reported only that the horse was discovered by, quote, a very intelligent black who can read and write. Uh, End quote. Great, great. That sucks. Good reporting. Oh my God. Jesus. Um, anyway, the racist article also noted that he had found a collection of turnips strewn across the beach, which was noteworthy oh. because, uh, hey, free turnips. Yeah. But also noteworthy because they were a type of turnip specifically grown in Sweden, mm. which meant that they were likely a part of the Yungalo's cargo. Yeah. When the storm finally calmed down, a search began to look for the Yungala, but with limited instruments and limited tracking of where the boat may have sank, their efforts were largely fruitless, unless you consider turnips a fruit. I don't know. I wouldn't know. Mom, I'm going out to the beach to get some water turnips. I'll bring you back some. The Adelaide Steamship Company sent out two of their own steamships along with a tugboat, and the Australian government sent out their own two steamships to begin the search. They tracked the entire voyage the Yungala took along with nearby reefs that were known for dangerous waters. Mm. They spent more than three days searching the bulk of the Great Barrier Reef and all of its nearby bays and inlets, but there were no signs of the ship. I should have just waited a few years. Wouldn't even been around anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> reef? I don't know her. <laughs> okay. Desperate, the government offered a $1,000 reward for the Whoa. discovery of the ship, but no one was able to take them up on their offer. The reward today would be worth a little over 30K. Yeah, that's a lot. $1,000 back then? That's a lot of money. Ooh, that's good cash. Yeah. Think of all the horses and turnips you could buy. Oh my God. Regardless of their inability to find the ship, things kept washing up on shore. Mm -hmm. Specifically, pumpkins. Oh. All right. A number of pumpkins washed up at a local. A number of pumpkins washed up at local lighthouses, along with bags of dry grains and other supplies and burlap sacks. Yeah. And these were Swedish sacks. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, pumpkins can grow in most places, and in colder storage environments, can actually be shelf stable for months as long as they are not carved into jack o' lanterns. So, I got it. I had a pumpkin for a year. We bought a pumpkin like two Halloweens ago, and it lasted. Like until I mean, eventually we just threw it away. Yeah, I mean, pumpkins. It was last still a long fine. Time. It was still firm. <laughs> Good firm pumpkin. But it wasn't. Yeah, we hadn't carved it. It was just there. But it literally like lasted a year. I, and then we just threw it away. <laughs> that's what you do. I I don't know. But if, it hadn't rotted yet. It was still fine. <laughs> they may even hear this. I'm not sure if they listen to the show. My roommates before I lived with them put a a gourd or a squash on a shelf above the TV, which did rot and then ah. dripped down inside the TV. Oh God! <laughs> so we have a stain of light at the bottom left side that is it's you can see it's just like a mound of gourd juice that has sunk its way into the panels. But you gotta get a new TV. If you're looking at it straight on, it's invisible. Okay. You have to be off oh, to the side. Okay. So I, I had people over and they're like, what is that? I'm like, it's the TV. Gord. Like, what do you it's gourd? It's, it's gourd, gourd meat. of course. It's gourd meat it's in my gourd, TV. It's gourd meat. It actually really helps the sound. Yeah. Um if you get uh, one of those uh, squash that don't last a long time, put it below your TV. Yep. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, pumpkins were often carried on ships, particularly ships with cold storage holds because of their shelf life. Yeah. Aside from supplies and a few windows and doors, no one found a trace of the Yungala and her passengers, all of whom were declared dead. It's a safe bet. Yeah. Gradually, the searches ended and the Yungala seemed to be a distant memory. The thunder crash until 1958. Oh. Yeah, that's true. Two salvage divers, Bill Kirkpatrick and George Conrad, were searching the area for other salvage when they discovered the remains of a large ship approximately 90 feet below the surface and about 11 miles offshore. Oh. This is terrifying to me. Yeah. Being underwater and finding an inc a, a massive vessel, Yeah. that scares the living daylights out of me. Yeah. I don't like the thought. 
While not exceptionally deep by today's standards, 90 feet in 1911 was far too deep for most divers and search parties to see. Yeah. But yeah. in addition to that, once people were finally able to get down to those depths, the wreckage was reported as an artificial reef and not identified as a sunken ship. It's an artificial reef. I don't if know. If not a sunken ship, like then a, it's become a reef. It sounds like a paperwork technicality. Yeah, yeah. Like a reason not to investigate. They reported the discovery and made salvage claims on the ship, not knowing it was the Yangala. They retrieved the ship's safe, which held nothing of value, unless you think pumpkins and turnips are valuable. I do, they but are. that's fine Still, if you don't. Yeah. As they continued the excavation, retrieving the ship's bell and other artifacts, cool, they discovered it was, in fact, the Yangala. Once identified, multiple dive teams visited the site to take pieces of the wreck as a part of history. Good. That's good. <laughs> just, just vultures fainting on the carcass. Yeah. I got a sheet! I got a sheet! Uh, in 1976, Australia passed the Historic Shipwrecks Act, which prevented further salvage from the dive and designated the Yungala as a historical site. Today, it's a popular dive and exploration destination. Cool. The ships, You could not pay me to get in the water in Australia. I've seen those videos. Uh, so many No, sharks. Oh. Great whites? Horses? No, hell no. Horses everywhere. <laughs> but that's the problem is that the water horse population has dwindled so much due yeah. to overfishing of water horses <laughs> that there's no, the great whites don't have their meat anymore, they their don't. horse meat. Well, it's not our fault that the, the meat of the water horse is so tender. It's unbelievable. So it's, it's unbelievable. It, it cuts yeah. like butter. It's endangered, it but if mouth. you can get it, oof. It's dangerous That goes delicious. for any endangered meat. Yeah. Unbelievable if you can get it. There's nothing that eats quite like a rhino. <laughs> the Yangala sits on its starboard side and supports a 365-foot-long reef full of complex ecosystems. Oh, that's awesome. In the 47 years since the ship sank, coral and other sea life has been left to make the Yangala its home undisturbed. Nice. I love that when a, when a ship becomes a reef. Yeah. <laughs> And especially when it gets, like, tweeted at us. Oh, yeah. I love when people are like, did you see this incredible ship off an island that has been overtaken by nature? And it's mm -hmm. like, yes, I have, but, <laughs> but I'm glad you sent it Please keep sending them. Yeah, please keep sending it. Now, it is not only a protected historical site, but also a protected ecological site. It hosts families of eagle rays, hawksbill turtles, and multiple species of sharks. No horses, though. But uh, if they were there, they'd be protected. Yeah, but unfortunately, they were overfished before these protections were put in place. Yeah. This gave teams a chance to start archaeological studies of the ship, and today it has been scanned and tracked, which allows us to have a better understanding of how and why it sunk in the first place. The rock believed to have punctured the hull is still there, although now a part of the larger reef system. Do you think they ever run into each other? The They're in the same the reef system. Yeah. I mean, it's got to like be mixers. uncomfortable. They probably weird, try to right? avoid it, right? Yeah. I mean, like, the fact that this rock got off scot-free is a testament to the holes in the Australian justice system if you're in, in Australia, the early 1900s. If you're in Australia and have access to a ship and a sledgehammer, get out there and take that rock down. We are endorsing vigilante justice <laughs> against this <laughs> <protected> rock. Protected reef. <laughs> against this protected reef, yeah. We are, of course, not doing that. Patrick is, though. Poison the water. <laughs> <laughs> Unload more horses as yeah, a karmic yeah. retribution. <laughs> <laughs> Just dumping poison horse carcasses yeah. into the waters of a protected area. Ah. <laughs> um, anyway, 
Dives of the interior of the ship have allowed archaeologists to see the areas where the boilers may have ruptured and how the water may have flooded into the ship, causing it to sink so quickly. Additionally, tracking of weather patterns in the area have allowed modern scientists to believe that a hurricane out at sea just off from where the ship was found is the likely cause of the wreck and not, as previously believed, a murderous boat-sinking racehorse named Moonshine. Vengeful, too. I can only think that a little bit of ether would have helped. You calm, know, at least calm the horse calm down the a little. Horse yeah. down Give them a, a, a nice buzz yeah, instead in the eight of... eight yeah. seconds before they capsized. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so that is the Angala. Uh, happy to revisit the, the, the seas of Australia once again. Uh, second time Where nothing season. good ever happens. Apparently not. Let's head up to the northern hemisphere, though, and then travel a little bit higher mm-hmm. to the top of Niagara Falls for our honorable mention. Let's talk about Annie Edson Taylor. Okay. She was the first woman to go over Niagara Falls, and mm-hmm. she did it in a barrel. As they so often do. Uh, this is a real thing that happened. On October 24th, 1901, reporters and rivermen gathered at the bottom of River Niagara Man. Falls. Yes. <laughs> a gathering of rivermen was uh, uh, constituted. Okay. Uh, they gathered to witness what they were expecting to be a public suicide. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Wait, was uh, she the first person to ever go over in a barrel or the first woman? Uh, she was the first person to survive a trip over the falls in a barrel. Okay. So I'm assuming there were previous uh, attempts. Attempts, yeah. yeah. And it was a little bit more ingenuity than you might expect. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she had a manager and everything that were helping her of course, execute yeah. this Show fantastic uh, yeah. a trick. Not even trick. She really did it. Yeah, at the top of the falls, Annie and some associates uh, placed her into a barrel and then put a lid on and pressurized the inside with a bicycle pump. And then they just sent her floating down the river. <sighs> so yeah, not only did she have a manager guiding her through the process, but Canadian and American authorities had threatened to charge him with manslaughter in the event of her death, should it happen. Sure. Which they were, I think, just Pretty standing there yeah, with yeah, cuffs yeah. ready. Yeah, yeah. So he was a little restless during the 18 minutes between when she went over the falls... And was seen again. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just being tumbled around and floated in a closed-off barrel. But against all odds, her barrel came into sight unharmed. And she was okay, except for, like, a gash on her forehead. Uh-huh. Um, apparently, she had been awake for the entire time, except for a few moments when she was unconscious going over the falls. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> she's quoted as saying, nobody ought ever do that again. Uh, That's a great quote. Well, there's another quote that goes even harder. If it was my dying breath, I would caution anyone against attempting the feat. I would sooner walk up to the mouth of a cannon, knowing it was about to blow me to pieces, than make another trip over the fall. Um, (laughs) Really incredible stuff. So, yeah, she she may have been the first to ever do it in a barrel. Oh, well. She was the first to survive, certainly, but I think she may have also just been the first to do it. I mean, that's... That takes guts. I'm not sure. Somebody else had, like, jumped off before, but... Yeah, so some details. Uh, by the way, this was her birthday. She was 63 years old. I figured it was her birthday. She, she was 63? She was 63. That's like 105 in 1901 years. Yeah. Is that what well, year it was, 1901? It was 1901. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but uh, she had previously lived lavishly off an inheritance that she had received from her father, uh, but that did dwindle, and she ended up... Uh, widowed and very poor and desperate at the top of Niagara Falls. Uh, Her husband died in the Civil War, it said. Really? Yeah. That's wild. Anyway, she was hoping that some of the the fame and press from this particular stunt would, I think, re-elevate her to the upper echelons of high society. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's how she ended up 
unconscious inside a barrel tumbling off the magnificent Niagara Falls, and she lived and tried to live the rest of her days profiting off of her relative fame, but never quite achieved the lifestyle she once boasted. I mean, yeah, that's not, like, it's cool, but you can't just do that and expect to get rich, <laughs> oh, right? Well, it's 1901. Yeah, I, I mean, feel like I think 30 you get a, years prior, you get a, yeah, you could have. You get a couple, I think you get a couple years. Yeah. But then you got to do something new. You have to. Well, she wrote a memoir. She, like, did other stuff. She spoke. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, later, uh, claiming to be 57 years old, the 82-year-old Annie Edson Taylor checked herself into an infirmary and died. Oh. Yeah. Um, She had nothing. Uh, She left behind basically an empty bank account and is buried in the Stunter's Rest section of Oakwood (laughs) Cemetery in Niagara Falls, New York. Oh, so they have an entire area just for people who died trying to do stunts. Yeah, she was next to a guy that, like, rafted, I think lived and then died later, but, like, they had to, like, raise money to put on a funeral for her because she had nothing. So... Well, uh, now she has this episode of a podcast where she's briefly mentioned at the end of another episode. Yeah, of a now podcast. she has this this uh, this ep- uh, not she's, even this episode. She's smiling down on us right now. She's smiling down on us from or a up. barrel in heaven. We don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's like some Grecian thing where every day she tumbles from the heavens in a barrel. Oh, that could be. Yeah, <laughs> she just constantly yeah. is just falling in a pressurized uh, barrel. Anyway, if anyone does this, send us pictures from inside the barrel. Yeah, and for you pressure heads out there, it's thirty psi. <laughs> Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, we've spoken on this before, but this was a time when they were probably worried about the bicycle upsetting and stealing the natural beauty of the horse. Yes, which it did. It did. Um, you know, bicycles wash up on I the I mean, shore honestly, all the time, it but, really did. Yeah. I'd much rather look at a horse than a bike. Okay. Well, we'll get into it. There's uh, no argument. Mike. There's no argument. Thank you for listening to Shit for the Bike the, fan. Over the Horse. <laughs> we have been your hosts. The show is researched by Paige Wesley, it is edited by Kelly Reynolds and Nick Schwartz. Art by Stevie Hogan. You can follow us at Ship Hits Pod on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> he's making faces. He's, he's making a lot of faces. Uh, you can follow us there where we're uh, tweeting. Um, we we have not yet paid the $8 for a verified check mark. Um, know that if we do. We've been compromised. We've been compromised. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Thanks, everybody. May your bones bleach in these sands. Mm-hmm.